Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and Popular Culture. I'm your host, Craig Absher. Thank you for tuning in. Today we will be talking with Nadine Hubbs about her new book, Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music, out recently from the University of California Press. Dr. Hubbs is Professor of Women's Studies and Music Theory at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, Nadine. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Let's start a little bit with background. Could you tell me about how you came to this project? It seems to me a book that links your life and your academic training. You're right about that. And um, I still haven't enough distance out from the book to, um, to, to know how it is you came to that assessment, to know where it is that I've uh, revealed my life in the book. That's not to say I'm shocked to hear that. I, um, I think it may be a little projection on my part, and I was just testing that. So I'm glad to hear that I was right about that. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and that helps me also to um, answer the question because um, I would say that in a way I have been building up to this book um, throughout my academic career. Whether or not I had it clearly in mind as this book all along. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a certain uh, extent to which this is me search. Um, only in as much as it combines uh, music and gender and sexuality studies, which I had been doing um, ever since my PhD dissertation, but now also brings in perspectives on class. Um, and so that was the new element for me in my research. And I had very much wanted to do that in my first book. I had those first two elements. I had, um, gender and sexuality studies and music. And it was a book about a circle of gay composers who I marked out and looked at, um, because they were, some of the most famous composers that America has ever produced in the classical music world. And they were also the folks who came up with America's trademark national sound. And it happened that they were gay men in the most homophobic period in U S history in the middle of the 20th century. So, um, that book, um, was not quite going so far into um, my pet issues. Uh, that one, I, I, I couldn't have possibly 10 years ago written this one. Um, but uh, from, from there, I combined this, this third element of class studies. And that was a really big project because um, we don't have... Uh, very obvious or readily accessible um, body of scholarly discourse analyzing class in America. Right. Right. So let's, so let's, let's just dive into the book then. And I'd like to start where you start with the, the obvious band, the Foo Fighters. And I wanted to ask about that video in particular. Is that something when you saw it, you thought that goes in the book or did you write about it immediately or just file it away because it's, it's perfect. It's the kind of thing that it just really helps get the book started. So I was wondering, what were you thinking when you first saw that? Well, when you start a scholarly project, and you uh, meet up with your friends and colleagues at conferences and you tell each other what you're up to. Um, 
then often people will flag things and email them to you or, or now um, maybe uh, flag it on Facebook if, if you're Facebook friends. That was one of those things. My One of my oldest friends in the field, um, who I've known since I was 14 or 15 years old, who's now an ethnomusicologist at UC San Diego, Nancy Guy, gets credit for that. She, she saw the Food Fighters video that came out in uh, August of 2011, and she emailed it to me. Um, and when I saw it, I thought, wow, this has a lot of stuff going on that is really stuff I'm talking about. But, of course, um, making it sort of fit perfectly into the book and seem so obvious and a dead ringer was a gradual process. Um, so I'm glad to hear that it sounds really inevitable. Um, and, yeah, that's eventually I figured out how to place it right at the outset of my project to use as an illustration of um, the the stakes and the issues, the topics that would follow in the rest of the book. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Talk about the video and how it does set up those issues. Yeah. So um, <laughs> if folks want to find the video, maybe I don't know if you are going to include links. No, I could. Um, yes, I will do that. Okay, great. So then I, I don't have to go into the same level of description of the video. Um, your audience can just check it out for themselves. Um, the, <laughs> the video is uh, actually just a tour promotion um, device. It wasn't the release of a single for Foo Fighters. It was a novelty song where Foo Fighters pretend to be a country band just for the moment. And they sing with a heavy twang, Dave Grohl, a former Nirvana member. He sings with a, with a uh, drawl and they're all dressed up in a way that um, some of the media would later call uh, cowboy truckers. Others called them uh, hillbillies. Others called them rednecks. It was a hodgepodge of all of that. Um, so they were truck drivers, which is typically a redneck, uh, image, but they were dressed in the stuff that you would buy in the hillbilly section of a Halloween costume shop, long beards and corncob pipes and all of those kind of, uh, props. So, um, the song was kind of like an extended adolescent gay joke. And uh, the best line to illustrate that is when Dave Grohl sings in the, in the deepest voice he can to try to sound like, I think, a, a parody of a country singer. He sings, Driving all night, got a hankering for something. Think I'm in the mood for some hot man muffins. So, you know, this is this is just like adolescent boy gay joke. And right. uh, strangely enough, the media, the the left media, liberal and progressive media, starting with Huffington Post, then Advocate.com, and dozens of other online media, Washington Post jumped in on this and proclaimed Foo Fighters champions of gay liberation. Um, this ties to the fact that they performed the song a couple weeks after they released this video live across the street from the Westboro Baptist Church. Westboro Baptist Church were standing outside the venue in Kansas City of Foo Fighters' first tour stop. And they're standing there with the usual homophobic picket signs, God hates fags, and uh, the rest of it. Um, thank God for uh, uh, IEDs, uh, you know, these really hideous signs that they became notorious for after they first picketed the funeral of Matthew Shepard and then started picketing the funerals of Iraqi war veterans. Um, because they tangled up 
the don't ask, don't tell policy, uh, um, you know, the thinking is sort of hard to explain. It's, um, it's tough to explain logic when there seems to be none, right? Yeah, it's a very twisted logic. Um, so anyway, it is virulently homophobic stuff. So Foo Fighters get across the street from this homophobic um, picket, and on a flatbed truck, they get back into their hillbilly slash redneck getup, and they sing this adolescent gay joke song, which they call Keep It Clean. And it basically, you know, they're out there for, for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, as far as I can tell from YouTube, it wouldn't have been much more than that. And they make a video of it, and that one goes viral. Um, because it gets all this press, um, and they are proclaimed, as I say, uh, champions of gay um, emancipation. Um, and <laughs> the irony of it um, didn't seem to register in any of these accounts. The fact that the whole thing is just an extended, silly, gay joke um, would never have been guessed from the coverage. So I, I thought about that. What is going on here? How can that sort of song be proclaimed as some sort of great monument in progressive politics? And then the cultural logic of it became very clear to me. Um, you had a group of indie rockers who, as I explain later in my book, um, because of their musical affiliation, are connected with progressive and liberal politics, by contrast to country music, which is linked in the cultural imagination to conservative politics and backwardness. And because they are twanging a country parody song that has some sort of gay content and sort of shouting down the obvious um, uh, homophobes across the street, they can be depicted as uh, progressive, anti-homophobic heroes. Right, and I, I think that does set up the idea that the middle-class mainstream looking at country music responds with, well, what you have for your first chapter title, anything but country. And that contains all of those class assumptions that country music carries with it. And I have, by the way, since reading your book, talked to anytime I talk to a group of undergraduates, I've tested that theory. I've asked them, what kind of music do you listen to? And you're spot on. Anything but country seems oh, to great. be seems to be what ask those who aspire to the middle class, that's what they say. Very interesting that you did that experiment. It's harder for me nowadays to do that experiment because I can't really go undercover. Right. So I'm in, I'm I'm very intrigued to hear that. It was, students do confirm this to me. I have, of course, at University of Michigan, a course by the same title, Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music. So by now, um, students at Michigan know that I teach this stuff and that I, I'm interested in this stuff. But when students come into the class, first of all, a lot of them come out as country haters or people who don't love country anyway. Some of them are country fans. Um, some of them just want to learn more and, and confess that they don't know a lot of country music. But in any case, they do still confirm to me that that phrase comes up among their peers um, with great regularity. Right. Right. So could you talk a little bit about the, the use of country music within American culture in terms of its enforcing class distinction, because I think that's one of the really important ideas that comes out of the first part of the book. 
Right. So um, we can't dismiss uh, pop culture or relegate it to uh, sort of fluff status, not even when it's country music. Um, The ways in which class difference works in 21st century America has very much to do with taste. We don't have a cultivated discourse, a vocabulary, or an established conversation about class difference um, in this country. But we do have uh, very cultivated notions of what constitutes good taste and what is tacky, what is um, uh, admirable and what is disgusting. And we unconsciously bandy those judgments about without recognizing that um, that is really the hot spot um, in, in many instances for the operations of class and f- indeed for the formation of differentiated classes. Right. And you talk a little bit about the, the way that all of that prevents mainstream press critics from seeing what really is going on in country music because they look at it as working class culture. Therefore they assume something as simple as figurative language can't be at work there because after all it's working class culture. Right. And so um, I do talk about, uh, critics' assessments of country music uh, at various points in the book. And you often see critics attributing a kind of um, uh, lack of sophistication uh, and, and literal-mindedness to country music um, that, first of all, they wouldn't attribute to other culture forms. Um, you, you see, for example, with rock music, if you sing punk, if you sing punk rock, then you may well take up a British Cockney accent. It doesn't matter where you're from, uh, which continent you're from or what your class origins are. Those are the performance conventions in that music. Likewise, when British rockers sang rhythm and blues songs in the British invasion, they all took up an American accent or even African-American speech. And people didn't call them phonies. So there are various conventions, performance conventions in country music as there are in uh, virtually any kind of music. Um that are read really uh, literalistically by critics from outside country music and then um, deemed to reveal the phoniness of the music. This is one of the charges that I see most often come up among critics from outside country music when they turn to country music phoniness. And it's, it's very intriguing to me. I connect it also to um, some things that have come out in my conversations with audiences and with my students. And finally, I think I recognize that the working class itself just doesn't seem real to a lot of middle class subjects. There is that distance in society, and there's the distance culturally, and it's understandable to me that the working class, um, the white working class particularly here is what I'm looking at with country music, um, somehow lacks realness. And so the accents of country singers are often accused of phoniness. The sentiments that are expressed in country songs 
are often accused of phoniness um, by critics and, and by other listeners. No, and I think that's what's really important about the chapter on sounding the working class subject is you you are looking closely and looking through those assumptions that most people most people in the in mainstream American culture bring to country music. And so, if you could talk a little bit about about that chapter, I think that would be great because I I think that's fascinating, sort of turning that lens, an academic scholarly lens on not just country music, but working class subjectivity. So in chapter one, anything but country, one of the main points that I establish is that when people make that declaration of their tastes, I'll listen to anything but country. Um, As sociological scholarship, empirical scholarship has shown, there's a musical exclusion that stands as proxy for social exclusion. So when I say I'll listen to anything but country, I am situating myself, positioning myself with the middle class and apart from what are deemed working class tastes and therefore particularly one study showed apart from an audience that is associated with um, some of the lowest uh, educational standards. Um, So in chapter two, having established that country music is associated with the working class subject, um, I set out to try to reveal how working class subjectivity is a form of subjectivity and not just a failure to attain proper middle class subjectivity. Right, right. This is why it's actually the longest chapter in the book. I anticipate that uh, many of my readers will be middle-class subjects. I anticipate that they will be middle-class subjects who are open to some extent, um, possibly very open, to learning uh, about working-class subjectivity. And so I try to flesh out here what kinds of attributes... Um, might generally link to working-class subjectivity and working-class culture since I'm um, very firmly uh, setting out the point that there is a culture here. There is a form of subjectivity. It's not just a failed wannabe um, position. So I do this using two kinds of sources. I use a lot of empirical research. It comes from um, mostly sociology, sometimes anthropology, sometimes social psychology, um, where academics speak in their expert discourses um, in ways that define working class repertoires ways of working class, uh, ways that working class values are exposed, working class um, studies of child rearing I use a lot in this chapter. Um, There are studies of class differences in musical taste, in um, expectations about what one should look for in life, how how one makes choices and how that reflects on oneself or doesn't. And I've got Um, working-class friendship and and middle-class comparative friendship studies. So various kinds of studies in here in this chapter, but I also have as a counterpart, I don't just want expert discourses telling us what the working class looks like, sounds like, um, behaves like. So I also take country songs um, because I've established in the earlier pages um, that... In fact, country music 
does have a lot of working class people in the audience and does have a lot of working class people in the production end of the music, the singers, the songwriters, artists, producers. So I have that kind of double barreled um, source, the expert discourses and the country songs, and I'm constantly um, uh, making them speak to each other. And what I find is the country songs are saying the same things as the sociological studies, um, but they're doing it with different language and um, more tunefully. Right. Right. And some of the things that are fleshed out um, have to do with um, how individualism works. Now, this is an area that has received a fair amount of attention over the years, and there's a kind of a stereotyped view that comes out which would say, simplistically, that the middle class um, value individuality and the working class are um, more focused on the social group. And then some of the stereotypes that can fall out of that um, have to do with the working class then being conformist. And we see that over the past 40 years or so in the um, charges in the media and in books in the popular press. The one that I take up especially here is What's the Matter with Kansas? But the idea that uh, the working class are really subject to peer pressure and conformity and um, a kind of uh, herd uh, mentality in politics. So um, I find a lot of research that actually um, contradicts those views. And I also find research here where um, scholars have a more refined view of even the differences between working class sociocentrism, to use that word, and um, vaunted middle-class individualism. And so the view that I end up favoring is this view that says, look, in the 21st century, working-class and middle-class people are very focused on individualism, but they have different styles of individualism. The childhood studies, the child-rearing studies, um, parenting studies, uh, are especially revealing here, I think, in terms of uh, how how class how the classes um, bring up their children in order to, on the one hand, succeed in the middle class world, which middle class parents see as a very competitive world, and so they are constantly honing the skills, talents, and gifts, as we call them, as if they are inborn. In fact, we see that um, in Annette Leroux's book, Unequal Childhoods, which actually is fairly well known, um, showed this brilliantly, that a lot of resources are expended to cultivate these so-called natural inborn gifts, the talents of middle-class children that will allow them to be competitive um, and maintain their middle-class status against the fear, um, as Barbara Ehrenreich called it back in her book in the uh, late 80s, her study of the middle-class, the fear of falling, um, is the worst fear of a middle-class parent um, falling down from middle-class status. And so a lot of resources go into cultivating individual talents. On the working class side, the parenting, child-rearing studies show that working class parents actually do instill in their children a sense of how you fit into the group, how you behave so as to benefit the group um, in ways that are different from um, middle class child-rearing and then Leroux and other scholars show that middle-class institutions 
and here especially schools valorize the middle class style and in certain I'm sure unconscious ways punish working class children um, for carrying forward the values that indeed they have been trained uh, to to bring forward the values of um, on the positive to look at it from a positive angle values by which they they fit into the group and benefit the group. So, for example, their parents um, do not call the school as much to uh, question or complain about what might be going on because the parents uh, see the school as authoritative and the teacher as the boss. And as LaRoe showed, and many of you listeners probably know this work, um, the teachers then unfortunately see the working class parents as not caring. Um, and the children um, suffer for it. So part of what comes out of all this is how um, differently the middle class and the working class are situated in relation to institutions and some of the key institutions that have to do with the rest of my story in this book um, are not so much the schools, but the media. And then um, when we're talking about homophobia, which I do in the second half of the book uh, and how the working class, I say since the 1970s, particularly, so I historicize this phenomenon, or this, this rather uh, shift, but the, the working class has been increasingly seen as, I call it, the bigot class. Homophobia is the form of bigotry that I look at in particular. Um, and whereas uh, I think any analysis of homophobia and its workings in America over the past 115 years, say, really has to look at institutions like the media and medicine and the law, psychiatry, um, and schools certainly are in there too. Um, we have had increasingly since the 1970s this narrative, this cultural narrative, whereby uh, the bigot class, that is this, this new framing of the working class, um, is, is blamed for homophobia and other forms of bigotry. Um, which is never to say in my book that um, the working class is some sort of angelic or pure class that's never been guilty of um, homophobia or any other form of bigotry, but rather um, that this narrative we get time and again um, that shows us the working class as the source of problems like homophobia um, is, is a distortion. Uh, and it, it comes from the middle class, narrating class is a term I use here, um, who are middle class professionals and we have to recognize that we don't have working class people telling working class stories. We have working class stories and stories about country music and critiques of country music and, and working class culture elsewhere that come to us from the class that is adjacent to and structurally positioned as adversarial to the working class, precisely the class that the middle class is trying to avoid and trying to avoid sliding into. 
in a way then working class becomes the sort of a classical scapegoat in the way that the South has always held racism for the United States. Everyone else gets a clean slate because the South is racist. Right. Um, and I am not a scholar of the South and I try to proclaim pretty clearly at the beginning of the book that, um, my vantage point on country music, uh, comes from my own Midwestern, um, uh, residence. I'm a lifelong Midwesterner in the Detroit Toledo orbit and have been in Ann Arbor now for years, but right. There's the same sort of, uh, quarantining. Um, if we can blame the South for racism, then surely the North, um, must be guilt free. Um, I, I don't take up those issues and I don't take up regionalism, um, uh, in any primary way in this book. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with your, uh, comparison. So having, having established that class distinction and the way that middle class, uh, middle class members of the middle class position themselves in opposition to working class culture, talk a little bit about the second part of the book where you focus on, Gretchen Wilson's Redneck Woman, and then uh, David Allen Coe. Yeah, so um, the first part one of the book is the first two chapters, and we've, we've um, talked about both of those, first anything but country, and then sounding the working class subject. And part one is called Rednecks and Country Music. So part two finally gets the third topic in there, and part two is called Rednecks country music, and the queer. And I have another two chapters. And the first one is my uh, gender chapter. It's called Gender Deviance and Class Rebellion in Redneck Woman. Um, the final chapter finally gets us to this queer topic. Um, and I'm sure we will talk about that in a bit. Um, so chapter three which, as I say, is my gender chapter, uses this song that came out in 2004, Redneck Woman. I remember the first time I heard the song on my car radio, and I was road tripping out toward Illinois, which is actually Gretchen Wilson's home state, and I just cranked it up. The song was electrifying. I found it electrifying, and I know that a lot of listeners found this song electrifying, it was uh, a huge smash. Nobody had ever heard of Gretchen Wilson before. And um, Redneck Woman was a record-breaking mega hit for Gretchen Wilson. And um, she had been struggling and, you know, pushing her career for years in Nashville. So I don't want to say she was an overnight sensation because for her it was not overnight. But for uh, the country music stage, it was. Suddenly, um, Gretchen Wilson was there in a big way. Um, so this song obviously spoke very powerfully to fans. And this is actually where I started my work on this book. It ended up as chapter three, but it was the first thing I wrote. Um, there's so much in this song. And... Uh, I analyze it in depth, um, both musically and the lyrics and the images surrounding it and the interviews um, that feed into the understanding and framing of the song for listeners. Um, anyone who knows the song Redneck Woman knows that uh, there's like a laundry list of, um, we could call them, in class analytic terms, um, sort of uh, consumption commodities. Um, she says, I ain't never been the Barbie doll type. I can't swing that, I can't swig that sweet champagne. I'd rather drink beer. So she doesn't drink champagne. She does drink beer. She um, drinks it in a tavern or a honky tonk. She doesn't like fancy places. Um, she's declaring that she's a redneck woman. 
she's kind of a, one of the boys gal and um, she she is she strikes some uh, poses in here that are pretty funny but they're also really spot on she says she um, she leaves her Christmas lights up on her front porch all year long so in the same way that in the 1970s, um, actually just a few years before Jimmy Carter became president and Billy Carter became uh, sort of the, the first redneck um, of the U.S., uh, there was a, a reclamation uh, around 1973 uh, of the term redneck. So Gretchen Wilson here in this song is reclaiming it and putting it together with woman when it's generally a masculine term. And she is reclaiming some of the um, spectacles that have been most shamed in connection with redneck status. So she claims it loud and proud that she leaves her Christmas lights up all year. She claims it loud and proud that she stands barefoot in her front yard uh, with a baby on her hip. Um, she, she claims it out loud that her lingerie comes from Walmart and she tells those women who get theirs at Victoria's Secret, hey, I paid half price. And I still look just as sexy as those models on TV. So um, this is very much about how consumption commodities signify and at the core, what is her complaint? What's her protest? That they signify who gets to be superior to whom in our society and really, who gets to claim full humanity to the exclusion of others? So the song is funny. The song is angry. The song is resentful. Um, it's musically irresistible. And it's all in three and a half minutes. I can't begin in three and a half minutes to do justice to this three and a half minute song with mere words. Um, your listeners will just have to uh, check it out for themselves if they haven't already heard it. Um, but then the analysis I do of this song um, also brings in how gender works and um, gender itself is class. We rarely talk about that. I'm in a gender studies department, and it's something that one does not hear or read much in the literature about gender studies, which is by now a huge, very vital uh, literature and conversation that's ongoing. Um, historians of gender point out uh, that in English uh, class formation uh, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, um, femininity was conventionally defined, and it was defined by exclusion of working class womanhood. So the styles that were associated with working class womanhood were precisely the foil on which conventional femininity was produced. And it continues to operate that way. And that's really at the heart of the redneck woman's complaint. No matter what she does, the game is fixed. She is not going to be seen as respectable. So she ends up saying, to hell with y'all. I'm going to hang out with my girls and we have more fun anyway. And I, I think that brings up a really interesting idea about anger and politics because 
just as femininity has been defined in terms of how you're allowed to express anger, I think you bring up some really interesting things about working class resentment and anger and then how that political uh, voice is is sort of perceived by the middle class. Uh, um, absolutely. So one thing I point out in my chapter on Redneck Woman is that um, – Certainly, that's a song that got a lot of media attention, um, but you would be hard-pressed to find media commentators viewing that as a political statement. Um, country music, ever since Oki from Muskogee became a number one hit, in 1969 from Merle Haggard and the Strangers. And that song has launched books in its own right. We can't begin to do justice to that song and what happened around it politically. But um, it would seem that Merle Haggard was taking up a voice in that song, as he does in many of his songs. He's a brilliant songwriter and and, uh, has, of course, used that device Um, We should not, again, project such literalism onto a song just because it comes up in country music and presume that it represents transparently the perspective unmediated of the person singing it. So he has said in interviews that he was giving voice to a certain position in that song, um, And it's uh, a very conservative position that then was associated with country music. Um, Richard Nixon invited Merle Haggard to the White House. um, And that is absolutely a landmark moment for the um, culture's framing of country music in terms of right-wing politics. So if we think of country music being political at all, we think of it as being conservative or right-wing. Now, at the same time, as Merle Haggard had a number one single with that one song, Johnny Cash was topping every chart, crossover charts, globally with his pair of prison albums from Folsom Prison and from San Quentin. And those were very politically progressive, liberal albums, both. Um, And that part is sort of dropped out of the story in terms of how we understand country music. Um. But we, we don't tend to hear, in a song like Redneck Woman, we don't tend to hear a political statement. And part of what I'm saying in this book, or asking in this book, is why don't we hear politics in a song like that? Well, when you look at what critics say, what kinds of uh, statements and, and terms they use in discussing songs like Redneck Woman... They hear whining. They hear simmering resentment. Um, But they don't understand those emotions as political. And that is really striking to me. She is mad as hell in that song. And what she's mad about has everything to do with class. She's mad about her class position in this society. And she is mad about it in a way that we would now call in gender studies um, an intersectional positioning. She does not 
tease apart gender from class. She's taking up class as a gendered individual. But it's a class protest, that song, and so many country songs are. The anger, the thing that gets dismissed because it's heard and referred to in terms of resentment in country music, once you call it resentment, that gives us all permission to ignore it, to dismiss it, in fact, to feel contemptuous toward it. I am saying resentment is real, resentment is legitimate, and resentment in country music is political protest. Um, So I'm also saying that Redneck Woman, and I compare it uh, later in the chapter to a much earlier song, Kitty Wells' 1952 number one hit, It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels. Those two songs have a different style, but I'm saying both of them are feminist political statements. They don't get the same cred as the serious statement, the big statement songs in rock, um, in progressive hip-hop music, um, in other styles. But those songs I would call both feminist, and I'm not at all sure that either Kitty Wells, who's now in her 90s, or Gretchen Wilson would call herself feminist. But I know that a lot of working-class women um, don't particularly identify with the term feminist, and I think that has a lot to do with it being associated with and branded by and shaped by middle-class discourses. So, then in the final chapter, I continue my consideration of politics and country music as political music when I take up what was not a smash hit, but rather an underground release on an album that David Allen Coe refers to as one of his X-rated albums. The album was released in 1978, and it was called Nothing Sacred, and the album track that I look at in Chapter 4 is called Fuck Anita Bryant, with Anita Bryant misspelled. Um, I don't know if that was to avoid libel or... uh, Right, it, it was about the other Anita Bryant. That, that, that yeah, was the yeah, one. Right. I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> right. So that chapter is called Fuck Anita Bryant and the Queer Politics of Being Political. What do you got to do around here to be political is one of the main questions in this chapter. So here's David Allen Coe, who's a very, you know, disreputable guy. Um He was calling himself at this time the mysterious rhinestone cowboy. He was claiming very um, vocally his uh, status as an ex-convict. Rolling Stone in, I think, 1976 tried to track down the story and uh, wrote a little piece where they said, no, he's not. He's not an ex-con. He was in juvie but his claims don't hold water. There were rumors around. He definitely was in juvie for years, but um, there were rumors around, and apparently David Allen Coe himself bolstered these rumors that he had killed a man in prison. Um, I don't know whether the rumors uh, reflect anything true or don't, uh, but the story around that is very telling for my purposes. Um, So David Allen Coe, was uh, one of the figures in the outlaw country movement at this time. So he was uh, sort of, you know, professional, um, deliberate outlaw character. And he released this album track, Fuck Anita Bryant, and he did it just months after Anita Bryant started her 
anti-gay campaign in Miami-Dade County, Florida. Now, it turns out that that campaign of hers, um, where she, she started out just being mad because Miami, which, of course, uh, is a home of many, many gay people um, in South Beach, has long been uh, a place where many gay men hang out and live. Um, they had adopted an anti-discrimination ordinance in 1977, and Anita Bryan did not like that. So she started an organization that was called Save Our Children um, and depicted the uh, homosexual um, lifestyle and the homosexual agenda, as it has come to be called, as something that endangered America and endangered American children. And she had a great deal of success. A lot of that rhetoric is the rhetoric that's used um, up to today by anti-homophobic sex panic movements and groups. But um, it took a long time for, it took a while for the, the, gay and lesbian uh, civil rights movement to respond to her, um, she actually galvanized that movement more than Stonewall, the Stonewall Rebellion in 1969 had done. We often cite that as a historical landmark, um, but it was Anita Bryant who really pissed people off and got things going in 1977 uh, well, not quite in 1977, but that's when she got her movement going. So um, David Allen Coe really immediately responded, even before the gay movement responded. He wrote this song, <laughs> Fuck Anita Bryant, Who the Hell Is She? And he says, telling all them faggots that they can't be free. Then throw that bitch in prison, maybe then she'll see just how much them goddamn homosexuals mean to me. Well, maybe it's not too surprising that middle-class discourses never took up that song and proclaimed David Allen Coe to be uh, a hero of gay rights. For one thing, he kind of confuses uh, middle-class listeners because he uses the term faggots to refer to gay people and um, at the same time says, uh, imp- uh, suggests that they mean a lot to him and that he opposes Anita Bryant. Um, but I guess they don't know whether he's pulling their leg or they're not quite sure whether they should grant him any legitimacy because he uses a word like faggots. Um, so my students have often been perplexed by this song and I ask them, okay, look, can you at least figure out who does he hate more? (laughs) Anita Bryant or the people he calls faggots. And they say, Oh yeah, definitely Anita Bryant. So it, it, it shows this song, again, is such uh, uh, a treasure trove. There's so much going on in here. But it shows, um, I think, first of all, I read the song as absolutely uh, a song that expresses um, an anti-homophobic position. I draw on interviews with David Allen Coe uh, and some background material about David Allen Coe and his incarceration during his formative years about which he has spoken um, and spoken openly about his own homoerotic upbringing because he was in an all-male detention center in adolescence. Um, So I... I think there's evidence that he absolutely um, has sincere uh, anti-homophobic politics. But 
again, we see a kind of a, a language gap. And we see some of the reasons that the middle class can't hear working class political statements as political and cannot hear what kinds of politics are actually being expressed there. Um, and I also use that song to help illustrate uh, a historical point that I make by the end of all these arguments in the book. And that point is about homophobia itself. Just as we see a shift here in the dominant culture perspective on the working class, whereby, in my argument, it's been since the 1970s, which we might call the era of Archie Bunker, um, and, and any number of other things that were coming up in the culture about the working class. There was a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff coming up about the working class then. The hard hat, hat riots happened in the early 70s. Um, the last rash of labor actions and wildcat strikes in 1973. So just as I'm mapping a shift from the 70s up to the present, wherein we frame the working class as this discrete bigot class um, and blame sexism and racism and homophobia, forms of bigotry, uh, particularly, specifically on this class in society. I also map here in this final chapter a shift over a larger span of time, going back to the earlier 20th century, I show evidence that homosexuality itself was framed in the dominant culture as a working class vice. The working class was tainted by homosexuality, which was understood as deviance and perversion. By the end of the century, after the um, multiple civil rights movements, thinking had shifted so that the, the, homos, the, the homophobia now had a name. That name came up in 1977. Um, that had been respectable earlier in the century. And in fact, historians have shown that middle-class people starting in the early 20th century took pains to construct themselves in distinction from homosexuality and to be sure that they didn't appear in ways that could be seen as homosexual, that they put themselves at a distance from that disreputable new 20th century identity. But by the end of the century, it was now becoming disreputable and backward and retrograde not to be a queer lover, but rather to be a queer hater. And homophobia was a bad word. It had a word and it was now a bad word. No, and, and in, in both cases, the middle class was constructing that identity against uh, a working class position that they had also narrated. Yeah. So, so guess who now becomes not the queer lover, but the queer hater, uh, the homophobe. Um, it's, it's now the working class. Um, and so I, I deconstruct that, I historicize that, and I point out where we get our narratives, where we get our cultural narratives. Um, from from an, a middle-class media, um, from middle-class institutions, um, and 
so this song, Fuckin' Bryant, is a kind of historical oddity. It can be really perplexing to present day listeners. And it's a really great jumping off point for thinking about these historical shifts, these issues of um, our cultural framing of the working class and of the middle class, how the framings have changed, and how indeed the position that we value in the dominant culture still winds up being the middle class position, even as the meanings do a 180 reversal. What what are you working on now? Um, what, what does one do after a, a chapter on fucking Anita Bryant? I'm just wondering. Well, of course, I write a very brief outro, and I bring things up to date and talk about some of the country songs that have appeared much more recently that um, take up uh, LGBTQ issues and the ways in which they're taking them up. And, and I talk about the need in our moment uh, for the middle class and the working class to form alliances because we're seeing that the 99%, as it's recently been uh, doped out, that includes all of us. And, and we're falling farther and farther behind um, in, in the vast inequality that, that we're seeing now. So I make, I make a bid for some solidarity between the middle class and the working class. Um, and what I'm working on now, uh, I'm, I'm doing some, some other projects on uh, country music, and I think I'm going to keep working on class. Um, I don't right now have another book on deck, I'm, I'm writing some talks and some papers and I'm going deeper into one of the issues uh, that we talked about today, which is the, um, the country um, political protest song that doesn't sound like what we would think of as a political protest song. I want to um, look at uh, class resistance in country songs and, look at it in detail in a number of songs. This has been New Books and Pop Culture. I am your host, Craig Absher. I would like to thank today's guest, Nadine Hubbs, author of Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music, for speaking with us. And I would also like to thank you all out there on the interwebs for tuning in. I hope to see you again here soon. 